Philemon verses 4 through 7 is where we'll be this morning. I want to start off by telling you a joke. Um, An atheist was taking a walk through the woods. And as he was walking along the river, he heard a rustling in the bushes behind him. And as he turned to look, he saw a seven-foot grizzly bear charging toward him. He ran as fast as he could up the path, and he looked over his shoulder and saw the bear following him. And at an instant, the atheist cried out, Oh my God, time stopped. The bear froze. The forest was silent. As a bright light shone upon the man, a voice came out of the sky and said, You deny my existence for all these years. You teach others that I don't exist and even credit creation to a cosmic accident. Do you expect me to help you out of this predicament? And am I now to count you as a believer? And then the atheist responded by looking directly into the light and he said, It would be hypocritical of me to suddenly ask you to treat me as a Christian now. But perhaps you can make the bear a Christian. Very well, said the voice. The light went out. The sounds of the forest resumed. And the bear dropped his right paw, brought both paws together, and bowed his head and spoke, Lord, bless this food which I'm about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. I tell you that story because we typically pray when we're faced with moments like that, when we're faced with moments of truth. And this is about to happen to the man in which this letter was written to. This is about to happen to Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy man, as we saw last week, who had his slave steal things from him and then run away. Philemon becomes a believer, and so does his slave, his former slave, Onesimus. Onesimus and him both become believers, and now Paul, the apostle who knows both of these men, he has the goal to reconcile these men for the sake of the gospel. And now Paul, what he's going to do in this letter is he's going to act as a source of encouragement to make sure these men mature in Christ and do what God is calling them to do, to to actually do what God has done for them, which is to forgive them and to be reconciled to them. And so Paul, as he acts uh, in this way to encourage both men to walk in light of the gospel, Paul uh, prays for these men. He prays for this church that's about to face this difficult challenge, this difficult trial to walk through reconciliation and to be restored by the sake of the gospel. And what we find in verses 4 through 7 is this prayer that Paul presents to Philemon. And in this prayer, we begin to learn that Paul lives this sort of lifestyle of prayer that now overflows not just between his relationship with God, but also plays into how he loves and serves other people. And hopefully for us as a church, this is the kind of lifestyle that we want 
This is the kind of lifestyle that we should be shooting for, a lifestyle that, a prayer that shows our relationship with God is healthy, but also it's such a blessing that it becomes a blessing to other people. It becomes a way by which we serve other people. So my question is this morning, how do we get there? How do we have a, a lifestyle of prayer this way where we serve others? I don't know about you, but I struggle to pray for others at times. Sometimes the, the phrase, I will pray for you, comes when we don't know what else to say, when someone's going through a hardship. It kind of is our go-to phrase. And oftentimes you'll say that, and if you don't pray right there on the spot, you won't even think about it again, if you're honest. Am I the only honest one here this morning? I mean, I struggle with that. Maybe you don't know how to pray for people. Maybe you just go through the list and say, Lord, I, I remember such and such and this need that they had, and I'm just going to pray for that, that you would work it all out according to your will. And we don't know what else to say. I remember the first time when I was first learning how to preach, I, I would go and preach in little small country churches in eastern North Carolina when I was in my early 20s. And when I would sometimes get to these churches, uh, one particular church, they would just have me do the whole service. They'd hand me a bulletin and say, this is the order of the service. So I'd say like, okay, who's the choir director? Who's going to do the songs? So you're going to do the songs. I'm like, oh, this will be a good service, right? Like you asked me to do the songs. I mean, this is going to be bad. And so, um, but they also they said, we want you to do our pastoral prayer. And so I would get a list of things to pray for. Like, and I don't know any of these people on this list. Like, so I'm up there praying, God, thank you for this morning. We pray for Joe and his knee surgery. We pray for Cindy's dog and Betsy's cousin. And I, I don't know who, who these people are, but I'm just praying. And I remember this one time I was like, all right, I've got to mix this up. I've got to make this come more to life. And so here I am in my early 20s trying to be real uh, profound in my prayer, real deep. And so I, I remember just praying, God, thank you for all the things that we take for granted. Thank you, Lord. And I, I got real spiritual. I said, thank you, Lord, for the air that we breathe. And I remember right then when I prayed that prayer, this old lady on the front row, she had an oxygen tank. And right as I prayed that, it went <gasps> like that. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, that was, a, that was not good timing at all. And so maybe that is you. Maybe you struggle. How do I even begin to pray? How do I begin to pray for others? Um, let me just tell you this morning, first of all, that that is completely normal. And today I'm not going to teach you a method to pray. I'm not going to teach you a discipline to pray. Rather, uh, we're going to go beyond that. We're going to get to the heart of not just a discipline or a um, method we're going to get to the heart of a lifestyle that leads to prayer. And that's what we're going to see in the text. It is one that where our prayers not just glorify God, but they serve others. And that then leads to a lifestyle that we see played out in this text, one that leads to forgiveness and reconciliation and how to love and care for others. So we'll see this in verse, I'll start in verse five, 4. Paul says this, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of of Christ. 
For I delivered much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, I want you to see verses 4 and 5. Paul, notice the frequency of his prayer. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, right? It's plural, prayers. I always remember you in my prayers. So in other words, there is this built-in discipline that Paul has to pray. But not only that, notice that he prays for other believers. He has this prayer life that's consistent. And as he has this prayer life that's consistent, he's including all of these other saints. Now, we know this is true, not just for Philemon in the church of Colossae, which Philemon was a member of. Uh, it's also true throughout Scripture when Paul prays. Uh, in fact, what you'll see, and I want you to hold your place in Philemon and flip back to the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks to another group of people that are very dear to his heart. It's the church of Philippi, one of Paul's most beloved churches. And what you'll see is Philemon chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 1 are honestly, they're going to mirror each other in an, in an odd way. It's almost, it's almost a word-for-word uh, copy from the other. And it's showing you once again, this is how Paul lived his life. He lived a life where he prayed diligently, but he prayed for others diligently. Look in Philemon, or Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank God, he's saying this to the church of Philippi, remember that, in all my remembrance of you. See how it's really similar to Philemon? Always, in every prayer of mine. For you are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I want you to just put a little marker there in Philippians because we're going to go back to it. But turn back to Philemon. Notice the similarities here. Paul is built into his life a discipline of prayer, but also a discipline of praying for each other. Don't you just love it when you have asked someone to pray for you? And then like a month later, they come back and they say, hey, how is that going in your life? I have continued to pray for you. I've continued to bring this need up as I've been praying to the Lord. And what a blessing it is. And this is how Paul was such an encouragement to the church because he would always remember believers in his prayer. Notice both texts, both Philemon and in Philippians. He thanks God when? He thanks God when he remembers all that God is doing in the lives of the saints, all that God is doing in the lives of his uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so for this reason, and I just want to say this, this reason alone, I, I believe, I think it's impossible for you to mature in Christ unless you are in gospel-centered community. I've said this before, like this church is a family. We come together and not all that we do is Sunday morning. So that even last week, we are to do life together as believers. And what is the two things? If you read the New Testament and Paul, by the way, he wrote the majority of the New Testament. What do you see in Paul's writing that encouraged Paul the most when he's suffering? What encourages Paul the most is he believes that God is sovereign and good. 
That God plans everything out for his purposes and for his will and for our joy. But not only that, the second thing that encourages Paul the most is what God is doing, not just in his own life, but what God is doing in the lives of other people. And so I believe this is true for every believer who wants to mature in Christ. Faith comes to life in community. Why? Because we're encouraged when we see others grow in Christ. I have seen this happen at Integrity Church over and over and over again. And not just at Integrity, but the healthiest believers I know are believers who are committed to gospel-centered community. And here's why. Because sometimes we get blinded by our own sin, it's hard to see the goodness of God in our lives. So sometimes to know and believe that God is true, that God is loving, it's good to see that he's doing it in our lives as well as the lives of others. And so by being in community, Paul has something and someone to pray for. And not only that, Paul is encouraged and challenged to remember all that Christ has accomplished when he sees it done in the lives of others. You'll hear us say this at Integrity a lot, like we're a church, we want to talk about the gospel. We want to proclaim the gospel. We want to preach gospel-centered sermons. We want to play gospel-centered songs. Everything sort of comes back to the gospel. We say it this way in Integrity. The gospel is our epicenter. Everything flows from and through the gospel. But so here's the thing about saying the gospel. People often lose what it means because you can say it so much that the, the, the word almost becomes meaningless at some point. It's sort of like a political ad. You're just tired. I don't want to hear anything else about the election. God, just end it already. And by the way, just get off Facebook this week. Just do us all a favor, okay? Don't get on Facebook, okay, this week or forever, and that will be fine. But... Um, but, but sometimes we use that phrase over and over again. It becomes sort of a, a junk drawer f- phrase. But you'll hear us say phrases like this. Remind yourself of the gospel. We'll say things like this. Think or meditate on the gospel. My question is, what does that mean exactly? That you would just think and ponder on Jesus living a perfect sinless life? living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we should have died on the cross, and he rose from the grave and he conquered the penalty that we deserve. That's what it means to reflect on the gospel. Yes, but also it goes more than that. It's not just remembering the narrative, the story of the gospel, but it's also all that the gospel has accomplished. That's also meditating on the gospel. It's remembering what Jesus has done in your life when he saved you, but also what God can, what Jesus continues to do in your life. And it not just, it doesn't just stay with you. It also flows in how God is blessing and encouraging others through what he's done. And what does that do when we do that? When we meditate on the gospel that way, when we look at the other believers that God is working in and we begin to think and say, oh gosh, 
Man, that was so incredible what he did to such and such. That person is not the same as they used to be. They used to be addicted to this. They used to be reliant on this, but now they're putting their hope and trust in Jesus. Look how that believer suffered so well when they had that miscarriage, when they lost that family member, when they lost their job. Look how they cling to Christ in that trial and that difficulty. And what does that do for us? It helps us believe that God is true. God is loving. God is good. God is gracious. So it's important when we meditate on the gospel, we're thinking about it in a large scheme. Uh, Just a few months ago, a few weeks back, actually, I had a young man come in my office and he was struggling to trust Christ through a difficult trial. And I know this young man for a long time. I saw him come to faith in Christ. And so what did I do? I went back to the moment that he came in, in faith in Christ. I didn't just throw a bunch of Bible verses at him. Here's when you became a believer. Look at what Jesus did. Here's when, here's when you and your wife worked through this trial and this difficulty. Here's when you guys worked through this, this struggle with your kids. And this is how we've seen God work in your family. And look at all that Jesus has done. Do you believe that he will finish what he started in you? And, and so by doing so, I'm helping him reflect on the gospel. And what does that do? It, it, it stirs a greater affection for him. And this is what Paul's doing to Philemon. Look in verse 7. He says, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints that have been refreshed through you. He's reminding him, look at what God has done in your life. And why is he doing that to Philemon? Because he knows that Philemon is about to face something very difficult. He knows, Philemon, you're about to face this new challenge where you have to forgive someone who has wronged you. But look at what Jesus has already done in your life. And so when we see that happen, it gives us confidence because we know that God has proven his love to us in our lives. Notice verse 6. He says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Notice what Paul prays for in Philemon's life. He prays that the sharing of his faith may become effective. I love this because here, here's what happens typically when I see uh, someone become a believer. When someone finally becomes a believer, they immediately have two passions. They want to know God. They want to know his word. And then they want to share his word with other people. They immediately have a passion for their uh, lost family member, their lost friend, their lost neighbor, and they want to see that person come to know Christ. And what happens is when we begin to mature in Christ or we begin to grow in Christ, we sometimes we can lose that passion. We can kind of forget like the, the urgency of, of sharing the gospel. And so how do we sort of recapture that passion to share the gospel? Well, for me growing up, in a more legalistic background, I was more guilted to share the gospel. Like, I remember when I was growing up in church, like, I would hear, like, sermons like, if you don't share the gospel with this person, and, like, right before you enter heaven, all the people that you were supposed to share the gospel with are going to walk past you, and they're going to ask you, why didn't you share the gospel with me? And so immediately, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want that to happen to me, right? 
And I remember this one sermon I even heard, like, if you don't, the people that you failed to share the gospel with, you will have their blood on your hands for eternity. And they, they chose, like, some uh, Old Testament uh, verse out of context to say that. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I've got to go share the gospel with this person because I don't want their, like, their physical blood on my hands for eternity. I know it doesn't line up with heaven. Like, heaven's a place where he forgives you and there, there's no sin, but apparently there's this guilt that lingers in heaven forever. And so now I have to share the gospel. I don't want all this junk in heaven, right? I want to enjoy him, not like have blood on my hands when I'm lifting them in front of Jesus, right? I mean, it's crazy, but, it's, but that's often what drives us to share the gospel. It's guilt. For instance, if I want to guilt you to share the gospel, I could be pretty good at it. I could show you all the statistics about Greenville and unreached people groups throughout the world. We kind of did that a few weeks back. We just sharing you awareness. But here's the thing, like if you're guilted to share the gospel, it will only last a few days, maybe a few weeks, but it won't last and it won't be built on the gospel. And so listen, um, how then do we share the gospel? What gives us a motivation to do that? What's Paul's goal for Philemon? How does he do it? He reminds Philemon of how God has been working in his life. Theologian David Guzik says, this is the foundation for all effective evangelism. It's the overflow of a life touched and changed by God. God had done every good thing in the life of Philemon, and now it's a matter of being knowledge by both Philemon and those he shared his faith with. And when these two things were understood, others would come to know Christ. And the reason why we often hesitate to share our faith or hesitate to pray is because we don't know or can't communicate the good things that God has done for us. In other words, prayer and sharing the gospel or evangelism comes from cherishing Christ for what he has done. So yes, this morning, I could guilt you to pray. I could guilt you to share the gospel, but it won't have lasting effects And this is why Paul focuses his efforts on reminding Philemon of God's goodness. Because being reminded of God's character is what causes us to pray and share the gospel with others. And here's what I want you to see this morning. If you don't see anything else in this sermon, prayer is not the issue. Struggling to share the gospel is not the issue. It's a struggle to focus on God. Prayer is not the issue. Sharing the gospel is not the issue. Worship is the issue. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, says it well. He says, oddly enough, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they are focusing on praying, not on God. He also goes on to say, the answer is not to get more discipline or develop a new system or a prayer notebook. Prayer is a natural result of desperation and faith. When the gospel has cultivated humility and faith in us, 
we will obey what First Thessalonians says to pray continuously. Paul Miller, praying life. And when we began to be thankful for all that Christ has accomplished for us, we actually began to pray real prayers. I don't know about you, but I've grown up with saying prayers that I'm like wondering, why am I saying it that way? Do I even believe that? So when we pray out of an overflow of acknowledging God, here's the thing. We're growing to know God more, and we'll not just pray because we want to. We should. We pray because we want to. And we'll actually pray better. Why? Because we'll actually begin to know the heart of God. Alexander the Great was once asked by one of his generals if Alexander would pay for his daughter's wedding. And he had, uh, he had been a faithful servant for all of Alexander's life. And Alexander said to him, sure, but you'll have to talk to my treasurer. So he asked the treasurer for an exorbitant amount of money, more than any wedding his treasurer had ever heard of. And so the treasurer went to Alexander and said, this is what he asked for. And he expected Alexander to explode and say, no, I'm not doing that. But Alexander smiled and said, give it to him. And the treasurer said, why? And Alexander responded, in asking this huge amount of money, he has honored me because he is saying that I am both rich and generous. And that gives me honor. The point of it is, he believed in who God was. And he believed, he believed in who Alexander was. And that is why he asked in that way. And if we believe in who God is and we ask in the way that God is, not the what God that we conjure up in our mind, we pray more biblically. And we tr- pray more beautifully. Look at, and this is why the second part of verse six is so important. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. What does he say? What does he pray for? The full knowledge that is in us. So if you're living out of guilt, and I know um, most of you would say that your prayer life is not good. I don't know anyone who who says, I have a great prayer life. (laughs) I don't know anyone who says, man, I share the gospel so well and all the time. It's just a part of my life. I don't know anyone who does that. But my fear is this, like we've got like less than 60 days until the new year, which is unbelievable. Like I just started getting used to writing 2016. Now I've got to write sevens again. I got to get used to that. So, but maybe you're like that. Maybe you're going into this new year going, okay, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to share the gospel more. I'm going to have more of a devotional life and all these things. But But here's the thing, you cannot do that unless your passion for Christ is stirred. You're not just going to create a habit without your passion for Christ being stirred. Because a passion for Christ, it will lead to those two things. It will lead to a greater prayer life. It will lead to a greater sharing of the gospel in your life. And by the way, if you think you have a passion for Christ and it's not leading to those two things, praying and sharing along with living a holy life, perhaps your passion for Christ isn't what you think it is. How do we grow then in our passion for Christ? 
We don't just magically do that. And so what do we have to do? Well, like I said before, if you look at Philemon in the opening words in verses 4 through 7, and the type of prayer that Paul prays for his friend Philemon, and if you look at then at Philippians chapter 1, the, the words almost mirror, but here's the thing about Philippians that I love. He takes a lot of the same ideas that he has in Philemon, but he builds upon it, and, upon it, and he gives us practical advice on this is what it means to have your affections stirred for Christ. So listen, if you're here this morning, you say, I want my prayer life to grow. I want, I want to share the gospel more. I want my life to be holy as, as he is holy. It's not going to magically happen. It happens through what Paul is begins to capture here in Philippians 1. So let me read Philippians 1, verse 6. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You can see Paul's love for these people. He says, and, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And this is where it gets a little odd. This is what he says. Your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, isn't that odd? Paul says this, here's how I want you to grow. In your, in your relationship with God and your relationship with others. I want your love to abound in two ways, through your knowledge and discernment. Isn't that a weird way to describe love? Like for you, those of you who are dating and those of you who are married, if you went to your wife and said, baby, I want to love you with all knowledge and discernment. It just seems kind of cold and odd, does it not? So here's, let me unpack what he means when he talks about these two things. First of all, Knowledge. What is knowledge? How does he want them to love with knowledge? Now, obviously, we want you to grow in your knowledge and your theology because it affects everything else. Here at Integrity, we say what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. But here's, here's where I want to help you out a little bit with, with just using the Greek language, all right? I don't use the Greek very much because I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert of it and just say a bunch of Greek words to make you feel like I went to seminary. I'm really smart. But here's, here's what the Greek word that he uses. He uses the word epignosis. Now, gnosis is the word for knowledge, but he uses a different word. He uses epignosis, which is actually not just knowing of or about something. Rather, it's, as Gordon Fee, theologian, puts it, um, knowledge that comes from experience or personal relationship. And it's the kind of knowledge that really Paul is describing is where life has had a chance to beat the trash out of you. And you've applied what you know about him, and it's become experience. And so this is why I'm a little skeptical sometimes of people who have never really been faced with any challenges in their life. They've had life come at them a little too easy. 
But here's what I'm convinced of. As I've been the pastor now for several years and I've walked through life myself, I'm seeing the life of other believers. I really believe that real maturity happens through knowing God, but also through pain and suffering. Real maturity happens because we begin to apply what we know about him and experience joy found only in him. See truth take place in our life. You know what that's actually called? Wisdom. It's called wisdom. Where we've seen God's word tested in our lives over and over and over again. So it's not just enough to know God theologically and intellectually. It's actually to experience God work in our lives. And this is why I think I'm such a big fan of biblical counseling. Because through biblical counseling, you have your heart challenged and press to the areas in your life that you don't want to go there. But what God often does, he works through that and he allows you to see who you are and then you get to experience the joy that's only found in him. And if we're not willing to go to the dark places in our heart or the challenging places in our heart, what we become is theological, emotionless robots that just spit out Bible verses when tough things happen. God does not want you to be an emotionless robot that can regurgitate scripture. God wants you to be a real person who enjoys him, who walks in happiness and joy only found in Christ. And that can only happen if we go to the deep places in our hearts and our soul. So this is what he prays for. This is why he says, listen, I want you not just to know God intellectually, but I want you to experience him. And by experiencing him, you'll have wisdom and joy that's found in him. That's epignosis. It's knowledge. And the other word he uses is discernment, insight. And this is where you begin to love the things that God loves and you begin to hate the things that God hates, namely sin. Where you begin to mature in Christ. Where you have a, a, a clarity of mind and truth. And you can't separate these two things. You can't, ex- you can't separate experiential knowledge and discernment. But in discernment is when you become sober-minded and you don't live based on your emotions are what feels right. You live based on taking God for his word. And so Paul says, I want you to love in these two ways. This is the way that your affections will be stirred for him. If you grow in your experiential knowledge, if you grow in your discernment, and this is how God wants us to love others. And he gives you the reason why in verse 10. Philippians 1 verse 10, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Approve means that you've been tested. You've been put through the ringer. And like for some of you who are med students, you've seen this happen. How can you do brain surgeries? Because you've been tested like crazy. You're like a robot as far as what you know and what you, how to perform. And you've been through all these labs and rotations. And now when it comes down to the moment that you really have to step up, you know what to do and you know what to say. And this is what he's saying. You are prepared for the coming of Christ. You can walk through this life knowing how to love and serve others because your affections with him have been stirred over and over and over and over again. One of my biggest fears with millennials is that sometimes there's not a quest for knowledge. It's it's just, how do I find out things? Well, let me ask Siri and she'll tell me everything I need to know. 
But there's not a quest for knowledge. So, so, so like when I was a kid, and like this is, this is going to make me sound really old here. When I was a kid and I wanted to know something, there was this thing called an encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is like a really big book, all right? For those of you who uh, don't know. But, uh, and so if I had a question, like, what's the capital of Alaska? What's the ta- who's the tallest man in the world? My mom would say, well, you know how we need to find it. That means I'm climbing up the bookshelf to get the encyclopedia down. And then we begin to search. And as we begin to search, I begin to learn all kinds of things in that process. And I begin to grow and I'm mature. What, what helped me do that? It was being tested. It was being challenged in that way where I began to mature in my understanding of not just that, but all sorts of things in that process. And man, this even happened when I was a kid, even when I played video games. Like now, if you play a video game, you want a cheat code, you want to know how to get to the next level, you can just YouTube it and find the cheat, cheat, and then you can play it. But there's not like a quest for, like, here's how I can get better. Like when I was a kid, if you wanted to do cheat codes, you just tried all kinds of things over and over and over again until you finally get it. And that's why me at 37 years old, I can tell you how to play Nintendo and get 100 men on Contra. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, be a start. 100 men. This is why at at 37, I can tell you how to play Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson's punch out. Look, I'm not even looking at my notes. 007-373-5963. It'll get you straight to Mike Tyson. Why do I know that? Thank you. Why do I know that? I know that because I've done it so many times. So that your joy will be found in Christ. No, I'm just kidding. I've done that so many times. I've been tested so many times in that way. And that's how I know it, so that I could be approved at that point when I have to fight Mike Tyson and beat him before Evander Holyfield did, right? So listen, like part of you maturing is to go to the hard place in your heart and and grow in your knowledge and grow in your discernment so that you could be tested. And it all comes back to the gospel. And so as a point of application, I want you to just remember the context. Paul prayed for Philemon so that Philemon would have the courage to forgive. And the only way he could do that is to have his affections stirred for Christ. And so wherever you are this morning, in whatever season of life, perhaps you would wrestle with your soul this morning. You would ask the Lord to reveal this to you. Do you need to be more like Paul? Or do you need to be more like Philemon? Maybe for some of you, you need to be more like Paul. Or you need to diligently pray and encourage someone. Maybe this is out of your comfort zone to do that. Maybe you're not a person who likes to engage others. Maybe you're not a person who likes community. But this is how Paul grew. This is how Paul saw the goodness of God in his life. He was a part of gospel community. And Paul did this time and time again. So maybe for you, that's a step that you need to take to engage others. Maybe it's to share your struggles with someone else. Maybe it's diving into deeper waters of God's word or dealing with heart issues that you're desperately trying to avoid or protect. Maybe you need to be like Paul in that way. Maybe some of you need to be more like Philemon. You need courage to trust God. You need to grow in your epignosis, your experiential knowledge. You need to grow in your discernment. Maybe you need to 
get into God's word in a deeper way. Maybe you need to read a book that will challenge you to see God in a different light, to stretch your mind, to challenge you to, to press into maybe a harder place in scripture that you don't feel comfortable going through. And so here's the thing that we all can glean from this morning. We don't just have a prayer problem. We don't just have a sharing the gospel problem. We don't just have a holiness problem. We have a worship problem. So it's my hope this morning that God would use his word in this wonderful book, Philemon, to stir our affections for Christ. Or we're left with only the gospel to cling to. What a wonderful place that would be. God help us. Let's pray.